0: Starting off, though, this is what people were finding in Coquitlam yesterday when they heard about a pop-up vaccination clinic.
1: How many blocks? Uh, it's got to be at least 600 metres and more. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Six How many, many people, people do you guess? Several thousand.
2: <laughs> I've been here for two and a quarter.
3: So it took you over two hours to get your shot? Yeah. Well, I was working and I found out uh, about the drop-in. And went right away, no hesitancy at all.
0: So that was in Coquitlam. There were also two pop-up vaccination clinics held in Surrey. And my next guest caught some of the lineup and made a bit of a video about that. Romneek Johal is a host and producer with Complicated News and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, you posted this video, and I think a lot of people were looking at it, going, "Wow, that uh, is a long line." What did you see at the the pop up clinic in Surrey yesterday?
1: Uh, yeah, actually, the video I posted was from from this morning. Um, I was sent the video from somebody who had been waiting in line since seven a.m. Um, and what I found was that the the pop up clinic in question actually wasn't announced by Fraser Health, so. Uh, it said they were People who arrived were told it was open to those 18-plus, and that has not been a part of any of the government's communication that those 18-plus will be receiving vaccines in hotspot communities. Um, so yesterday and today, people have been receiving uh, vaccines at the pop-up clinics. Um, but with no real notice ahead of time. Uh,
0: You mentioned in the post that you put out, sending out that video as well, that some of the people that were there had camped overnight. Were people really, they were camping overnight in that park or in that area? So, yeah, I went to the, I got to the park this morning and for
1: those people that I spoke to, some had been there as early as 5 a.m. and had had posted up with chairs. Um, I was, I saw on Twitter actually that people had camped overnight. And again, this is all through word of mouth. People were told yesterday that this clinic would be back today. I reached out to Fraser Health and received no confirmation of that. Um, but the lineup uh, shows it wraps around the entire park, Newton Athletic Park in Surrey, which is has got multiple um, soccer fields as well. Uh, it's a large park, and the fact that the line uh, goes all the way around uh, shows that there's definitely an urgency to receive vaccines, but a, a real lack of clarity around doses or availability or um, how long the clinic is going to be there.
0: Yeah, so, so when you were talking to people, did you get a sense as well, and like you said, these were not advertised clinics, did you get a sense of how they even heard about this?
1: Yeah. So for most of the people I spoke to, and even for, for myself, it was all word of mouth. So um, a few of the people said they found out through a friend of a friend of a friend or somebody who works in healthcare who told their cousin. And, and it was really just like one big game of telephone. And so I think um, the difficulty with that is that it doesn't take into consideration, you know, the lang- language and access barriers. There were some people in line who didn't have cell phones to register or don't speak English. And so they were requiring assistance. And, and I just think about how many people who aren't receiving this information or aren't able to show up to these um, pop-up clinics at uh, the drop of a hat. So, yeah, a lot of people are finding out through word of mouth. I myself found out through a WhatsApp message and was frantically trying to verify that this was even happening. Um, but again, people have just been showing up, lining up. Um, I know people in their twenties who waited for four hours yesterday and were able to receive vaccines in Surrey. But again, this has been not um, publicly advertised by um, bc health or Fraser health sorry um whatsoever
0: right because on the one hand it's great to, the lineup show that people want to get the vaccine and are willing to stand in line and like you said in, in some cases camp out to get this uh, but it does raise questions doesn't it, about the communication and if the people that a hot spot clinic is being set up to treat if the people in that community are actually getting the message Exactly, yeah, my biggest
1: concern when i when I saw this was, you know, as somebody who's plugged in and and who sees all of this, even I was confused about whether this was real or whether people who above eighteen could just go and get the vaccine. And so I'm thinking about those who maybe don't have access or aren't on social media or. Are you know working at grocery stores or gas stations or taxi drivers? Maybe people who don't have English as their first language who would love to get a vaccine and actually need a vaccine who just aren't being told. So I'm I'm thrilled that people in Surrey are getting vaccinated. It's it's a hotspot community, but just the way that it's it's being played out and just from going there and seeing how many people are waiting with absolutely no guarantee of whether or not they're going to receive it. People who have been there since you know, like I said, five, six in the morning, and are saying, we're going to take a shot and see if we can get it. But they might be going home without a vaccine today.
0: Yeah. What would you think? Like you said, I think people are thrilled that, that people are getting vaccinated. But the worry is about people that this particular clinic or other uh, clinics is focused on if they don't get the message. Do, do you, how would you think the, the message could be communicated better? I mean, I think
1: the the fact that this wasn't even verified from Fraser Health is is, um, a big issue. I think, you know, if this is taking place, that's great. But the public needs to know about it. And the fact that hundreds and hundreds of people are showing up without guarantee, it it creates not only, you know, a a situation where people have to make sure they're being mindful of social distancing and following public health measures. It's A lot of people who are showing up at this one location desperate for a vaccine, but um, I think there should have been some sort of notice. There should have been some sort of, you know, multi-language um, rollout or maybe contacting um, essential workers directly because some teachers haven't been vaccinated. You know, some people who work, like I said, cashiers in grocery stores. And, and we recognize that a lot of these people are likely racialized people, people who have English is not their first language. Um, and so it's it's great. It's great that people are getting vaccinated. And like I said, I'm I'm thrilled, but I, I just question You know, the privilege involved for those who are able to show up and able to wait for four hours, not everyone can can leave work for for that long for four hours and then not even get the vaccine after that. So um, I think there just needs to be a little bit more clarity on the part of Fraser Health. and, And if this shows anything, that there's a great demand for vaccines, people want to get vaccinated in this community. But We just need to ensure that the communication and systems are in place so that language and access and information are not barriers to helping people get vaccinated right now.
0: Yeah, I know you uh, tweeted out as well or saying that this is kind of looking like looking for golden tickets at Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. I saw it and uh, as well thought it's like when people used to camp out for concert tickets, which, again, uh, great that people want the vaccine, but it doesn't seem like that's the most efficient way of going about doing it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I was hearing from people there that, you know, people are cutting in line or people are getting frustrated with, with the staff at these vaccination clinics. And I can understand that. But like I said, it's not a designer shoe drop. It's not golden tickets, but at the chocolate factory, these are vaccines and people need them to stay healthy. And as we've with this pandemic things are very serious and numbers are very very high in Fraser Health so I just wish there was some sort of organization so that you know I have family members who were frantically messaging in WhatsApp groups driving from one location to another driving for an hour and a half around the city but then I also think about what about people who don't have cars what about people who use public transportation as a a method of transportation And, and not everyone has that that time or or access or money to to do that. And and I don't think that that should be preventing them from getting
0: vaccinated. All right, Uh, Ramneek Johal, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. We are trying to get a bit more uh, clarification on this uh, throughout the day, but thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That is Romneke Johal, a host and producer of Decomplicated News. If you want to check out the website, that's Decomplicated.com. All right. We are talking more about those pop-up vaccination clinics that we saw happening uh, yesterday and today.
3: So we're contacting people who are registered and also available for drop-in for people who live in those areas. And uh, they're being informed that they're eligible and, uh, we hope to um, uh, immunize a significant number of people in very targeted
2: areas. That wasn't happening. Word of the clinics spread like wildfire on social media. Many of the people getting their shot today lived much farther afield. No one was turned away, raising questions about equity and priority.
0: All right, that was Health Minister Adrian Dix, followed by Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur. He was reporting on the clinic in Coquitlam yesterday. Let's bring in Richard Zussman, Global News journalist based in Victoria. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. So what's going on here? A lot of people questioning (laughs) if they missed the part of the announcement where the pop-up clinics were part of the vaccine rollout.
4: Yeah, so I think (laughs) there is a lot of frustration. It's important to note Every vaccine that gets into an arm of British Columbian is one vaccine closer to getting back to some semblance of normal. So that's good. But the problem here is this speaks to inequalities. It speaks to unfairness. It speaks to this idea, as you mentioned, around a lack of communication. The part of the clip that Aaron did not run in his story last night, that Minister Dix also said in that press conference yesterday or the scrum yesterday was that they would be checking postal codes of individuals who came uh, to the clinics to ensure that they were from the designated hotspots. The province created a plan. It was about using hotspots to vaccinate, but none of that happened. And, you know, we know that people came from all across the region, from neighborhoods where there's high transmission of COVID and from neighborhoods when there's low transmission of COVID. And they waited in line in some cases for three or four hours to get a shot. And I think We're going to get more details. Minister Dix is doing another scrum with the press gallery here in Victoria in a little bit less than an hour. And my sense is that we'll be dominated by questions like this. Like, when did the plan change? Why not take these, you know, 3,000 some odd vaccines administered yesterday and bring them directly to these priority workers that were supposed to get AstraZeneca, especially now that the policy is 30 plus. The other thing in all this too, Jill, is I think I, I... Broke this story yesterday of 30 plus because of all the messages I was getting from people like this wasn't any director from Fraser Health to the media. This wasn't anything from the province. It was this people telling me 30 plus individuals can go get the vaccine now, which was a big change from the 40 plus that it had been just the day before.
0: Uh, yeah, I saw that too. Someone emailed me a screenshot of their uh, the vaccine from their health authority uh, saying, hey, is this new? Why haven't we heard about this in the news? <laughs> I, I said, well, my apologies. I've not heard of this either. It's probably the same uh, thing that was going around or similar to, to what you got as well. Uh, so does it point then to not only the rollout, but communication because we started the show today as well uh, talking to a, a reporter about communication and the concerns being again it's great that there is a huge population popularity of these clinics but is it getting to the people in those hot spots that need to get the information and get the vaccine
4: yeah so communication has been an issue the province is grappling with the largest immunization program in history there was a very clear plan that was presented by dr Ballam and dr henry but that plan was rattled when NASA changed the guidance around how AstraZeneca could, could be used. The plan was always to target priority groups and hotspots with AstraZeneca. When the age guidance changed, they transitioned to move vaccine to pharmacies. And that has led to a number of these problems. And it creates inequalities. We know from everywhere across the world that the hardest uh, people to reach are those that are most vulnerable, they have lower rates of engagement, lower rates of immunization often those who are also not English speakers as a primary language. The province is finding it harder to get them registered and vaccinated. And right now, these clinics seem to me to be low-hanging fruit. They're the people spending a lot of time on social media, a lot of time listening to us on the radio and gathering information that way, and people with a lot of time on their hands. It takes a lot of time to wait four hours in a line to get vaccinated. A lot of people can't afford that. A lot of people weren't even aware they could do that. So there is a communication hurdle here, And the province is, to their credit, transitioning quickly here to try to put out fires and hot spots. But it's also leading to many people getting immunized that are not anywhere near the the top of those priority lists.
0: Uh, So is the thinking then that even if that's happening and people are thinking that that's unfair, uh, like you said, it's another shot in another another arm. Does it free up vaccine elsewhere so the age-based program gets ahead of schedule more or at least stays on schedule?
4: Yeah, I think that's part of it. But the big part in all of that is supply. Like we're talking, I think they administered nearly 3,000 vaccines at that one clinic in Coquitlam yesterday. We're talking 4.3 million eligible British Columbians. Like 3,000 is a small, small drop in the bucket for what we need to immunize. We need more vaccine and we're getting record numbers starting next week of Pfizer. But, you know, I know there's some concern about those vaccines being delivered. We've had delays on Pfizer before. We've had substantial delays on Moderna. We don't know when our next shipment of AstraZeneca is coming. Yes, we're hearing that the United States wants to share a vaccine, but this vaccine may not be here till May, June. At that point, to deal with the third wave, to deal what we're in right now, that's going to be too late. So, you know, the province is doing its best with limited resources, but I think there needs to be, as you mentioned, you know, stronger clarity and communication and if you're going to set up rules then you should follow those rules if you need to be from a hotspot with a postal code from that hotspot, you should be turned away if you are not the inconsistencies about who's being turned away is also frustrating people you know we hear some cases 39 year olds were turned away whose birth will turn 40 this year where in other places they weren't So, like things like that inconsistencies are what lead to people um not trusting the system. And I think right now we need full trust in the system to ensure that there's confidence to get your vaccine confidence that you are registered, confidence you'll get your second shot so we can all work towards that light at the end of the tunnel. Uh,
0: John Horgan yesterday uh, said he seemed overly optimistic, saying uh, once again, though, the message we keep hearing, hang on a little bit longer. Uh, But he did say the end is near. But again, I I was curious on how he could be so clear or so confident of that, given like given what you just said, it is going to depend on vaccine supply and getting it into millions of, of more
4: people. The second he said that, Jill, I went on my computer to look at the old transcripts and he said the same thing in March. And yes, this is the toughest stretch. We are in the toughest six to eight week period and we're probably halfway through that really tough period, maybe 40 percent through. And I'm not sure how helpful it is for British Columbians to hear we're almost at the end when it feels at times that we're getting engulfed. The last time you said it, Jill, we were on the upswing of a third (laughs) wave and getting crushed by that third wave. Now, at least, we're on the downswing when it comes to cases. But hospitalization, still over 500. ICU, still near the highest it's ever been. We're still hearing deep concerns from frontline healthcare workers around having to, you know, being overwhelmed by people coming in and maybe being on the verge of having to make tough decisions around, you know, who gets... The support and who doesn't. It's like these are the impossible decisions. We're not there yet in BC, thankfully. They are in Ontario, um, but there's worries here that we are close behind. So it's, you know, yes, we'd all like to believe we are almost there. We are getting closer to an end. Once we get through the May long weekend, you know, we'll have 60% of people vaccinated, hopefully, if everything goes well. But yes, there are supply issues yes there are issues around the variants and those are things that you know we still should be deeply concerned about
0: all right i know you're going to be chatting with the health minister so looking forward to that later today i just wanted to quickly ask you someone has just texted the program saying i live in a hot spot do i need to be over 30 to get a vaccine Do you know the answer to that?
4: Yeah, yeah. So that's been an inconsistent part as well. We are hearing stories that as young as 18 or 19-year-old in hotspots are getting vaccinated. It depends where in the province you are. But if you are in a hotspot and there's a hotspot clinic, my understanding is that all eligible adults are getting vaccinated. But that's another one of those inconsistencies, Jill. We've heard some people get turned away that are under the age of 30. Some don't. Uh, it's worthwhile going and checking uh, with your indiv- if you're under the age of thirty or have a child who's under the age of thirty, uh, but they have to be over the age of eighteen. Uh, it's worth checking to see if they can be vaccinated because I understand that's happening in a lot of hotspot communities.
0: All right, uh, lots uh, to uh, clarify there. Looking forward to that, Richard. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Joel. That is Richard Zussman, global news journalist based in Victoria. There is some proposed legislation. It is early on, but it is proposed and it would, if passed, allow police to become involved in domestic violence cases sooner than they generally become involved now. And joining me to talk about what exactly this looks like is Sarah Lehman, a lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is could potentially uh, make some pretty big changes. So what are we talking about when we're talking about legislation and actually creating a new crime when it comes to coercive control?
5: Yeah, so that's the terminology that's currently being used for this new proposed change to the criminal code, coercive control. And what proponents of this are saying is that it would allow police to Basically get involved earlier on prior to a person potentially say, being assaulted by a domestic partner or threatened outright by a domestic partner um, and allow charges to be laid in cases where there's um, manipulation and ongoing control within the context of what we would call a toxic relationship.
0: Uh, So what would someone have to do then if this was something that uh, did become law? uh, What would someone have to do? Because it seems like it would be more difficult to prove than maybe some other crimes.
5: Absolutely. I think this would be very difficult to prove. And it's a great question to ask, well, what does this actually mean? Sure, we can give coercive control a nice definition. We can say that it's a pattern of emotionally or psychologically abusive behavior that's manipulative and ongoing for you know a period of time. But what does it actually look like and how difficult will it be for Crown to prove in court Beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think that there's a wide range of behavior that could potentially fall within within this definition. And it's going to be very hard to actually see successful prosecutions in something like this.
0: Uh, would it be something then that that you would see some, somebody maybe harassing you or, or even, uh, I, I, although threatening is a crime, but if, if there was a, a, a history of harassment uh, between people that were in a relationship or maybe had been in a relationship, would it be something then that if this became criminal, uh, say text messages, voicemails, uh, that type of thing uh, would actually could be used as evidence to prove this? Sure. But again, that begs a really great question. Do we actually need a new
5: um, crime under the criminal code to address this behavior because that type of harassing behavior that's unwanted and ongoing already falls within the ambit of the criminal code. There is the crime of criminal harassment. We also have the ability for officers to lay something called an 810 information and that would impose protective conditions where a person is reasonably fearful within the context of really any relationship, including a domestic one, where another crime hasn't yet been committed. So we already have the tools in order to address these kinds of situations. And I'm not sure where this would fall in or if it's actually going to make any real change to how things happen.
0: Are there gaps, do you think, when it comes to criminal law and when we're dealing with domestic abuse cases?
5: Well, I think the better question to ask is, do we need this to fall within the ambit of criminal law? Do we need to address coercive control using criminal law? And I don't think that the answer to that question is yes. I think that there are gaps when it comes to um, domestic violence. I think that it is a very serious issue and there's not many people who are going to disagree with that, I hope. And I think that what we need to have instead of answers in criminal courts are more training, more education, more resources for people to access before it escalates to that level. So I think those are the important gaps that we have to fill and not necessarily doing so through our court system.
0: Uh, Something like maybe more intervention in, if we're talking about coercive control, before it becomes uh, maybe uh, to to the criminal point, because that still doesn't mean it's okay, even if someone's not technically breaking the law if you're manipulating somebody if you're if you're causing somebody uh, great uh, mental health harm and decline uh, where i mean i guess making sure there is protection for somebody in that in that case
5: absolutely and i think that even just having this conversation and getting this dialogue out there to talk about coercive control and what that looks like or what that means is really helpful because there are people who are in abusive relationships maybe it hasn't crossed the threshold yet to physical abuse But it still is abusive. And so having this conversation, getting these ideas out there, I think will be even more useful than, say, trying to impose criminal sanctions on potential offenders.
0: Uh, Do you think it would have an impact or or how would it play into the fact that we look at statistics and we know that for many women, women that do leave abusive relationships, it's often that point of time right after leaving is the most dangerous as far as being uh, being uh, followed being sought after Uh, women are are killed in that in that time frame if does this change anything do you think in that addresses the time before that
5: well again i'm not sure that criminal law is the right way to address these very real concerns in society. And again, they are very, very serious, real concerns when it comes to the threat of domestic violence. But we already have uh, this framework to deal with these types of issues. I think it's just more important to make sure that police are aware of the types of charges that can be laid and that they're doing a very thorough job of investigating, taking things seriously and deciding to lay those charges where appropriate. So I think that, again, the dialogue, better community education, better support, uh, that's what we need here, rather than creating a new offence that, quite frankly, I don't think is going to get anywhere.
0: Because I would imagine, too, there's the potential that if this was a new criminal offence, uh, there's also then it's going to shift to, well, you need to prove that you did suffer, that, that the the reason you you suffered perhaps mental health issues or the reason that, that this happened, it was all because of this person, the way this person texted you or, or treated you, and, and it seems like there would then be would we would it get bogged down in trying to prove that yes, it, this was in fact coercive control on a criminal level. Yeah,
5: you well, know, generally speaking, the burden of proof is on the Crown Council so the prosecutor, to show that the accused person engaged in that conduct beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's a very high burden of proof that's on the government to show. That being said, the process of going to court, appearing in court, testifying in court, that is never a pleasant one. Um, And so for victims of these types of scenarios where there's coercive control, there's domestic abuse, you know, it's not a great experience to have to go to court and deliver that evidence and then be cross-examined. So... I mean, it's something that should be avoided in a perfect world. But again, we do need to make sure we have appropriate tools and resources in place to deal with domestic violence, um, whether it's abusive, emotional or physical.
0: Right. And and I would imagine, too, or there I mean that uh, for many, it's tools to deal with it. Uh, but the pref- the preferred way of dealing it, I think, would be to prevent it not having to deal with it after the fact.
5: Absolutely. And I think that is, again, a very important um, takeaway from this
0: conversation. So do you think that this would do anything to to work on the prevention side or no?
5: Well, I think if we look at other jurisdictions internationally who have enacted similar types of legislation, coercive control laws, what we'll find is that for the most part, uh, charges aren't proceeding in these types of scenarios. And that it's very rare for police to lay those charges. And then when they get to court, it's even rarer still for a conviction to be secured. So it doesn't seem to have the same kind of chilling effect um, when it comes to rates of domestic violence in other countries like Australia and England. And I expect it would probably wouldn't have the same effect here. So uh, I don't think it will be all that useful in stopping domestic violence.
0: All right. Uh, Sarah Lehman, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sarah Lehman, a lawyer, the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. All right, we have been talking a lot about vaccine, uh, the vaccination rollout in this province. You might have heard the premier uh, saying yesterday a lot of uh, optimism and uh, that we are close to the finish line. Although we were talking with Richard Zussman earlier on in the program, and Richard, as uh, I expected he would have, checked his notes, and it was the exact same message that we heard in March, the exact same words. But if we are, in fact, close to the finish line, close to some form of normalcy, should we not be hearing a much clearer message about that? Well, Chris Sally joins me now, a columnist with the National Post. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, you've written about this uh, as well in that uh, the that finish line should be uh, a, a lot closer maybe than a lot of people think and that we should know that. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the messaging that we're getting at this point?
6: Well, I just think it's very sort of grim. I mean, you look at the United States, for example, and they are further ahead. They are ahead of us on vaccination. It's true, but we're also catching up to them. Um, and, you know, there's, they're, they're doing uh, vaccination drives at basketball, at NBA games in Milwaukee. There, there's, uh, you know, brew pubs that are giving out vaccinations. There's this real sort of like, hey, like, we're just about to beat this thing vibe. And here, I feel like it's just, it, it, there's no carrot, so to speak, um, off the, 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 the can be offered to people to to go get vaccinated. It's just, well, you know, you got to get vaccinated, and then at some point, uh, you know, this nightmare will be over. But it should be soon. And, you know, I'm not predicting. I mean, God knows nothing has gone to plan (laughs) uh, so far this year except vaccination. And and I just think that it would really be helpful for everyone, not least to get people to get vaccinated when it's their turn. Uh, If we just heard a little bit about A little bit of optimism, a little bit of um, enthusiasm that we're all going to get our lives back pretty soon, and also a plan from our governments to see what exactly that's going to look like.
0: Uh, yeah, and it does seem like no matter or I guess depending on where you look, I remember the other day seeing a snippet from a news article that said that was quoting some health officials saying uh, health officials say once everyone's vaccinated, we could see a slight easing of the restrictions. And I kind of stopped dead in my tracks thinking, what is the point? If all we're getting yeah, through right. is a slight easing, that's not what we're working for here.
6: Oh, I know. This, this is what Dr. Uh, Theresa Tam, the federal chief public health officer, said uh, last week. She had this modeling that said, well, if 75 percent of adults get vaccinated, then we might be able to start easing restrictions. Well, and she was talking about mid-July or August. Well, first of all, she's not in charge. Of these things um, you know the, the federal government is in charge of something like our borders but I don't know why she feels it necessary to weigh in on on uh, constantly on areas of provincial jurisdiction but secondly like if you look around the world if you look at Israel if you look at a lot of American states uh, and if you look at Britain although Britain is a more recent experiment because they only started reopening like a couple of weeks ago You'll see that 75% is way, way higher than other countries are reopening at, And there's been no indication that it's leading to disaster. Now, there's a lot we don't know about COVID-19. I accept that. But I don't see any reason to expect that, that we would be any uh, different than somewhere like Israel or somewhere like Britain or somewhere like, you know, Texas or California or New York State. Um, this this should work and i get that public health officials are are reticent to well i don't know if i get it clearly they clearly they're, they they have a they don't like the idea of expressing optimism it's like they think everyone will go out and party in the streets well here in toronto there's nothing you can do anyways right. <laughs> you know, you know this, well i got vaccinated on monday uh it, it produced zero benefit to me um Uh, in terms of my lifestyle, in terms of things I can do. There's nothing to do here. So at least we could hear about the things we're going to get back. And and, um, even if they don't know exactly yet, you know, I don't even get the feeling that you don't even hear a lot about them planning for it. You know, are there going to be vaccine passports or or are there going to be restrictions, you know, things like that? I mean, it'll be controversial, but at least then we could be talking about the end of this Mm -hmm. instead of just constantly stuck in the middle of it.
0: Do you think it has to do with uh, as well? And I saw a doctor saying uh, that they were still seeing a number of people admitted to hospital after getting the first dose. Uh, whether whether that's people that did just that, went out, started partying, not realizing that it takes a couple of weeks or three weeks, or it didn't really do the trick. Is it because we're dealing with such, at least here in BC, such and some other provinces, the four month gap between the doses and that that's unclear? And some of these other places and other countries are... Are going ahead and we're talking about people who have had two shots
6: yeah i don't know it's 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 tough to know um and it was a tough decision i, I get that and, and i don't i don't honestly know which one is right do you protect the most vulnerable people with two doses as quickly as you can or do you get as much immunity out there in the general population it's 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 tough um and the situation is definitely different across the countries. certainly the the situation in B.C. with the Brazilian variant is, you know, much different than it is here in Ontario, for example, which is another reason why I don't understand why Dr. Tam sees fit to talk about all of this as one thing. I I, I mean, I don't think that should be a huge, it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, we know that that immunity that that the uh, vaccines provide is not 100 percent, certainly not when only, you know, whatever it is these days, 25 percent something like that of the population have had the vaccine so i i think you know i saw those headlines uh, you know oh well this person got vaccinated and then she has covid well yeah i mean that, that was going to happen but it should also be a much milder case of covid than it would have had otherwise that's the evidence out there when it comes to one shot so i don't know again I, maybe maybe it's a good point i mean maybe we should have been hearing about this maybe we should officials should have been preparing us for the fact that this this isn't a magic bullet but on the other hand um it's not each shot is not a magic bullet but you know 70 million shots taken together is kind of a magic bullet so uh get out there and and get vaccinated um but we're just not there's there's no like if, if you're all hesitant to get vaccinated for whatever reason no one in any official capacity, is offering you any <laughs> sort of reward for doing it. Uh, and right now, demand outstrips supply, um, but eventually it won't. And I think we're going to run up against a lot of vaccine hesitancy, and, and we need to start, people need to start smiling. <laughs> like, <laughs> I get that it's still a grim situation. Um, people are still dying, it's awful, but it's been a lot more awful in the past, and it will be a lot less awful in the near future.
0: All right. Talking uh, definitely uh, about more clear messaging. Chris, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us and talking about the column. Thank you. All right. Chris Selle is a columnist with the National Post, and you can read uh, that column taking a look at uh, what he was just mentioning. Uh, if they are, uh, the headline is vaccines are our salvation. So why are our public health officials and politicians afraid to say so? Continuing uh, the conversation, should we have more to look forward to? Should it be a clearer message on what exactly vaccination gets us? Well, Jason Tetro is with me now, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, great to be joining you.
0: Uh, I think you heard uh, some or all of what Chris Selle said as well. Mm -hmm. He's a columnist with the National Post uh, writing about this. What are your thoughts about this, that we should have a better idea uh, of what it means after one shot, what it means after two shots as far as returning to some form of normal?
3: Uh, Yeah. I mean, when you've got that one shot after two weeks, it doesn't matter if you've got uh, AstraZeneca or Jensen Johnson, Moderna, Pfizer, you're going to have somewhere around the uh, 60 to 80% protection. And that's going to be good enough to be able to make sure that you are going to be safe from any kind of moderate or severe symptoms for the most part. But you got to wait that you know, two weeks. Um, If you go for the second shot, then you start going up into the 80 to 95 range. Uh, If we can get you know, 75% of the population vaccinated with one dose, uh, we're going to see the cases plummet, just as Chris was saying uh, in other countries like Israel and the U.S. and such. Uh, And if we start getting those secondary or or booster shots in there, and one of the nice things about delaying the booster shots is we may actually start seeing booster shots designed for the variants as opposed to the original lineage, then we can really bump up all of our protection. So in that sense, it's really good to be able to share that. And you've know, you heard me, I'm an optimist as well. Um, Where it becomes a bit problematic is the actual uptake itself. And that's one of the reasons why people are not as joyous uh, in Ottawa or other places.
0: What do you mean by that? That, that people even knowing that to aren't going to, to, to take part in this? Or, or... Yeah.
3: yeah. So let me take you back to 2009. Do you remember we had a pandemic?
0: We had... <laughs> Vaguely. I remember it was nothing like this one. <laughs> no,
3: but it could have been. And the reason it wasn't is because we had a vaccine in four months. Now, here's the really interesting thing. How many people got the vaccine? And in actual fact, it went on for another year as a result of the fact that we had such a low turnout for people to roll up their sleeves to get the uh, pandemic flu vaccine. And now, here we are, and we have AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, where we have 40% of the population basically saying if it was was offered to them, they would not take it. That was the latest Angostry poll. So the idea is we want everybody to get vaccinated and we can start looking at celebrations, but we're not going to have a Halloween on Granville Street until we have everybody vaccinated and we have no path to get there because of hesitancy. So you always have to have that in mind when you're talking about being optimistic at the higher levels.
0: So, at what percentage though you talk when we talk about kind of getting to that that community uh, immunity, the herd immunity, is mm-hmm. there a magic number there because I've heard different numbers?
3: Yeah, so really, when you are looking at this particular virus and the way that it spreads, um, if it had been the original lineage, it probably would have been about 60 to 65 percent vaccinated with about 10 percent having previous infection. Now it's going to have to be somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of the population vaccinated, because the original lineage, people who have recovered from the original lineage may still not be able to stop reinfection with the variants. So now it's really a, a point where we have to get all these people vaccinated and we have to do this within, you know, the, the supply issues that we've got. I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons to be concerned at this point. And I'm the optimist here. So I still think we're going to have everybody having that vaccine by the end of June. But right now, it's still a little bit too early to start celebrating. Um, Let's put it this way. When you were going up against the Death Star, if you're the rebellion, you weren't celebrating until those two photons went into that little port.
0: (laughs) All right. That's one way of putting it uh, that people can relate to. Uh, At what point, though? I mean, there's still there's always going to be or or maybe not, but I would imagine there's always going to be some risk. And it's what level of risk are we Mm -hmm. willing to take? Because there are going to be people who can't uh, get vaccinated. And we've told this message before many, many times. That's the reason why people who can uh, are being encouraged. It's one of the reasons why. Mm -hmm. Uh, What level do we say, yes, there is still this risk in the public, but we're reopening that we've got to the point where we can do this?
3: Yeah, I mean, the risk is always going to be there as long as the virus is circulating. And we're nowhere near the ability to develop an elimination like we do with measles. So there is always going to be that risk. But We face that risk every single year when it comes to viruses like the flu and respiratory syncytial virus and even rhinovirus, which can be deadly to people who are immunocompromised. So the reality is we can get back to that normal, but we do need to have that large number of population, what I call the elimination threshold, vaccinated. And again, because of the variants, we've gone from only two thirds now up to between 75 to 80 percent needing a vaccine Uh, before we can actually start, you know, loosening up those restrictions.
0: Uh, We're seeing pop-up clinics right now in parts uh, of uh, Metro Vancouver with people Mm -hmm. are waiting three hours, four hours, six hours. There were reports of people camped overnight in some cases to get the vaccine. So clearly there is a demand for it. But like you said, there's always going to be some hesitancy. Uh, Do you think is it hesitancy, though, or is it supply that is our main roadblock right now?
3: So right now, supply is still going to be the big issue. And all you have to do is look at the um, uh, National Advisory Committee on Immunization, NACI. They've actually said they preferentially want mRNA over AstraZeneca because of the risk. But because we just don't have the supply, they actually say, you know, get whichever one you can get, right? So in that sense, supply is the big problem at this point. In about three weeks of time, we're probably going to start seeing the hesitancy taking a much larger role. And then we're going to have to really be optimistic because we've got to try and somehow figure out a way to get these people to roll up their sleeves.
0: And do you think that helps or hurts when you have Nassie saying that, but then the message in B.C. is the best one is the first one available to you?
3: Yeah, you don't want to get me on the messaging. It's been been such, oh my goodness. I mean, seriously, um, I've been doing messaging for well over 15 years in different uh, different ways with respect to infectious diseases. I mean, what happened with respect to the vaccines has been a little bit of a roller coaster that we should never have had. And unfortunately, that really has contributed to a lot of the hesitancy. Uh, It could have been done a lot better. And I'll be the first one to sit at the table when we start doing a review of what happened.
0: All right. I quickly just have one question from a listener wanting to know if the coverage changes after your first shot if you've had COVID before.
3: Yes, actually, um, that's a very good point. If you've had COVID and then you get the vaccine, uh, the real world data is actually showing that you get the same type of protection as if you've had two shots. So really, whether you have had it and then you get the vaccine or you get the vaccine twice, you're going to have the same level of protection.
0: All right. Always good information. Jason, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us.
3: Hey, it was a pleasure. Take care.
0: You too. That is Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, talking about uh, vaccination and will it uh, actually be uh, that... uh, Silver bullet. Will it get us back to the place of normal? And if so, should that message be a little bit more clear? Well, if you are a fan of dogs, and who isn't really? I know some people aren't, but these dogs are pretty hard to resist. Talking about the CNIB service dogs and the class of 2021 graduating on International Guide Dog Day, of course. So let's find a little bit out a little bit more about these dogs. And Diane Bergeron is the president of CNIB uh, Guide Dogs and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Hello. I love uh, talking about these dogs. They're such amazing animals. And here we have a graduating class. So tell me a bit about these dogs. How many are they and what have they just completed?
7: So we have, uh, we have 20 guide dogs, seven buddy dogs and two ambassador dogs that graduated uh, at our ceremony today for International Guide Dog Day. Um, the guide dogs are specially trained dogs to guide people who are blind or partially sighted keep them safe and and to provide them with the independence and freedom that we all uh, we all wish to have um, a buddy dog is for those dogs who did not uh, did not for one reason or another become guide dogs um, they have a different career path and they become buddy dogs which is where we match the dog with a child or youth with sight loss, and they become a very well paid uh, very well trained pet they do, the the team does not have access rights like a guide dog does under the law. It's just that these dogs still have a fantastic job because they teach that child responsibility, helps build their confidence, and prepares them hopefully for the future when they get their uh, their own uh, guide dog in the future and then our ambassador dogs are dogs that are matched with senior volunteers and staff that go out to events to help teach people about the needs of guide dogs.
0: And so what kind of training or what to 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 graduate in this class what have these dogs gone through?
7: So we start our dogs in training at eight weeks old uh, when we get them from the breeder and they go directly into a foster home that we call puppy raisers and these wonderful volunteers um, take that dog in and raise it teaching it obedience, socialization, um, helping it to understand the world around uh, them and not to be afraid of things like sirens and loud noises and so on and so forth. And when they're about 15 months old, uh, depending on their development speed, they end up going into our canine campus, which is our kennel-based out of Carleton Place, Ontario, where our certified guide dog trainers and guide dog mobility instructors take them through their paces to... Um, teach them how to wear the harness, to walk straight in the middle of the sidewalk, to avoid obstacles, to find doors and stairs and elevators and escalators, um, chairs and so on, um, and literally be the eyes for someone who's who's blind. Um, the most important thing that these dogs do for, for those, I have my own guide dog, um, for those of us who are blind, the most important thing that these dogs do is actually a thing called intelligent disobedience and that's where as a handler I will tell the dog to go forward and the dog makes the decision if it's safe and if the dog feels it's not a safe thing to do because there's a uh, maybe a drop in the sidewalk a whole construction something like that um, the dog decides it will intelligently disobey my command and make a different decision to get me around that obstacle safety, safely. So hmm. they've got to have some good reasoning skills and analytical skills as well.
0: That's amazing. So then then you as a handler, you also have to trust the dog and that you have to trust that the dog knows, yes, there's a pothole or for whatever reason and you have to go with the dog.
7: Absolutely. The, that's the most important part of the, the relationship um, is the, the handler and the dog need to trust each other at all times. Um, if I second guess my dog, I end up in a a dangerous situation. So I have to put all my trust uh, into that animal. And, you know, I've often said to people that we're not in the dog business, we're in the people business. And the magic doesn't happen until the dog and the handler are connected and bonded. And when that happens, that's when that magic happens.
0: Uh, Are there times then when you try and make a match and it just doesn't work? Yeah, we do
7: our best to match the dogs as you can imagine they're they're not a, it's not widgets, we're not, you know, it's it's not a machine if it was we'd stick it in a box with an instruction manual and just mail it, right? <laughs> um these are living breathing beings and so they all have personalities and likes and dislikes and, and temperaments and so on. So we try to match, you know, a fast walking person with a fast walking dog and so on and so forth, but there are times that um, we get the team together and for whatever reason It just doesn't click, you know, that the handler just can't seem to uh, trust the dog or the handler isn't getting the communication or the dog doesn't understand that that person's way of movement. And so there are times that it doesn't work out. And then we typically will try to match that dog with someone else uh, that does work out and we will um, go back and look for another dog for the individual that uh, it didn't work out for.
0: Uh, now I know you train uh, Labrador Retrievers uh, and Golden Retrievers, and I think perhaps crosses of those two breeds. Mm-hmm. What is it yes. about those dogs that makes them uh, so suitable for this role?
7: They have a very high success rate in this in this work, primarily because they're they're the type of dog that their temperament is they just love to please. Their whole world is focused on on pleasing their master and pleasing the handler. The other thing about um, a guide dog is you want a dog that actually um, has a double coat that will shed according to climate. Um, when you live in a country like Canada where you can have differences in temperatures, you need a dog that can um, that can handle being in extreme cold and extreme heat. So uh, these dogs do shed according to climate, which makes it them the best suited for for this role. but it's also public perception. You know, if if you're out there with a dog that looks frightening, the public doesn't uh, isn't as accepting. And these dogs, of course, Golden Retrievers Lab, they are just the cutest and the sweetest. And, and they've got such wonderful personalities, great with children typically. And so the public is much more accepting of them. Um, but it's their drive, their drive and passion for the work.
0: Uh, labs especially tend to be, uh, yeah. and, and speaking from experience with my lab, uh, very food driven. So are you're able though to train these dogs to uh, to not eat off the street uh, when they're in work mode, and that that must be. Uh, I mean, that's such a uh, seems like a big feat for these dogs.
7: <laughs> it is. It uh, you know that's one of the things that we do. We actually do food distraction uh, in the training. We do you know drop food along the sidewalk, and we we have the dogs have to walk over it. Um, they do get a reward at the end, and and it does take time. And you know what, it, they're dogs, and <laughs> every once in a while, um, you know, you'll be walking through through a shopping mall, and somebody will have dropped a fry, and <laughs> sometimes they get it, <laughs> but uh, but most of the time, they you know, their understanding is that when the harness is on, they're at work, and when the harness is off, it's time to play and be a dog, and. That's why it's so very important that we tell people, please don't pet the dog, feed the dog or interact with the dog when the harness is on because they have to be focused on keeping their handler safe and they have to understand that this is their work time. And so that's why when the harness is on, we say, please don't please don't interact with the dog.
0: And that, uh, that was going to be my next question. And so that people understand that don't interact uh, dogs clearly uh, wouldn't know that there's a pandemic going on. So how are they able to, to know about uh, distancing, say if they're at a grocery store or in, in those places, uh, how do you deal with social distancing?
7: You know, that's one of the things that we've been dealing with since the pandemic started. Dogs don't understand physical distancing. They don't, they don't understand why all these people are wearing masks, um, and all they see is obstacles. And so it's really difficult for someone who's blind when we're in those situations. And we really need to rely on everybody else that's around us to verbally identify that they're there and to have a bit of compassion. You know, in the world right now, every single one of us needs a little bit of empathy and compassion. And especially for those of us who can't see, we're not getting close to somebody on purpose. But we did last summer receive a lot of calls at CNAV. The, the public were, you know, interacting very negatively with blind people, and people were getting to be afraid to go out and do things on their own with their dogs because of that. So, we had to do a big campaign and say, "Please understand, our dogs don't know what six feet is.
3: Right.
7: Um, please let us know where you are and show us some empathy."
0: So that's okay to say to someone, "Hey, I, I'm I'm right beside you here, or in the produce aisle, or absolutely.
7: hey, absolutely." Absolutely. it's You know what? It's very much appreciated because I don't want to be in your space any more than you want me in your space. Um, and so to say, you know, hi, I just want to let you know I'm standing about four feet from you. If you take two, feet, two steps to your left, then you'll be exactly where you need to be in this lineup. I'll let you know when we're moving. Um, you know, verbal in, in, information like that is so much uh, appreciated by those of us that, that, you know, that's what we have to rely on.
0: All right. Well, congratulations to uh, the 20 dogs uh, of the uh, CNIB Guide Dogs uh, Class of 2021. And thanks so much, Diane, for coming on and talking about this today. Appreciate it.
7: Thank you so much. We appreciate it.
0: All right, that is Diane Bergeron, president of the CNIB Guide Dogs. We're going to take a closer look at a new project that aims to tackle marine debris, abandoned boats, clean up BC's shoreline. It's a pretty big initiative. Taking a look at the uh, up to 1,200 kilometers of BC coastline, more than 100 derelict vessels are now the targets of these cleanup projects. And uh, interesting that we were talking about this today. Uh, earlier this morning had the dogs out. Uh, as I do, we decided to check out uh, the dog beach at Manier Park walking around. And I've tweeted out this photo before. There's a sailboat that washed ashore a few weeks ago now. And it's not uncommon for sailboats uh, to wash ashore, especially during those really intense wind storms. Anytime after the intense storms, you sometimes see them on the beach of Anya Park. Oftentimes, I've seen pieces of them in the rocks, masts, life jackets, boys, what, what have you. Uh, they get looted right away. People go on to them <clears throat> and uh, take stuff out, maybe metal, whatever they're looking for. Uh, this one was looted as it was, but uh, even more so, it had been spray painted and messages all over the boat. And I kind of put out a uh, uh, funny-ish tweet when I first saw it. Saying, I guess they didn't realize you were going to get a free paint job when the boat came ashore. Uh, but then it sat there, and it sat there, and it sat there. And just this morning, when I was out taking a look, uh, lo and behold, there was a big truck with the boom and the cables, and a couple of guys hoisting it up and putting it onto that truck and taking it away. So that's one boat off the beach. But after having posted that video this morning, I've been getting a lot of feedback from other people. Uh, who say, hey, wait a minute, there are boats uh, near my place. Hey, there's been a boat here for more than a year. Hey, there's this boat here. So clearly it is a problem and it is something that people have been paying attention to. Uh, A lot of questions on how do you clean up these boats and just how harmful are they when it comes to the shoreline and whether or not they're leaching onto the shore, plastics getting into the ocean. Let's talk a little bit more about the initiative that was announced earlier today in cleaning up this garbage. George Heyman and joins me now, Minister for the Environment and Climate Change Strategy in BC. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: My pleasure, Jill. How are you?
0: Very well. How about you? I'm uh, I'm good. I, I was just saying that I'm hearing from people. I posted a photo of the sailboat that got hoisted away from Kitts Beach after sitting there for a few weeks. It was cleaned up this morning and getting a lot of feedback from people saying, oh, yeah, we see boats. Yeah, there's been a problem here. How much of a problem is uh, this marine debris in BC?
2: It's it's quite a huge problem uh, on the coast, uh, up and down the coast, and it's a it's a real irritant uh, to coastal uh, communities, as well as uh, a safety problem and uh, and certainly an environmental problem. So we uh, we uh, initiated a consultation a little over uh, a year ago. It was uh, led by then Parliamentary Secretary Sheila Malcolmson, who's now the Minister of Health for. Uh, Our Minister for Mental Health and Addictions, uh, and the feedback she got was tremendous. So when we uh, did our uh, uh, Stronger BC Economic Recovery Program uh, last year, one of the first projects we wanted to announce was a plastics cleanup. Uh, There is... um, there is uh, a follow through this year with uh, what we announced today: nine and a half million dollars. We expect a uh, hundred derelict vessels to be uh, to be pulled out of the water as part of that, as well as uh, a significant amount of uh, plastic waste that is a threat to both um, aquatic sea life, uh, the environment generally, and uh, and releasing uh, microplastic pollution all the time.
0: Uh, pulling out a hundred derelict vessels, how much of a dent do you think that will make? And that, do we know how many derelict vessels there are?
2: I don't have the number, Jill, but it uh, it's a beginning. Uh, I, I'm certainly not going to clean them all up, uh, but it is a substantial start. And uh, I know there's a parallel program from the federal government. We consulted with them to make sure we weren't, weren't overlapping. They're addressing uh, some of the vessels that are, are an absolute immediate uh, hazard, whether it's uh, uh, through leakage of um, of oil or diesel or uh, or other, uh, other toxic uh, substances into the water. So uh, these uh, initiatives will happen happen in tandem. I, I know they're welcome uh, to coastal communities, uh, whether it's Southern Vancouver Island, the Southern Gulf Islands, or other areas of the coast. Uh,
0: how much is this going to cost?
2: We're spending nine and a half million dollars on uh, on the program. That was today's announcement. Uh, last year we uh, we budgeted uh, just under five million. The last um, one and a third of that is going to be spent by uh, June 30th by the Coastal First Nations Great Bear Rainforest Initiative. Uh, last year the. Small Ship Tourism Operators Association picked up 127 tons of plastic waste from uh, 540 kilometers of coastline over 42 days. So uh, we're building on that success. We're building on on the knowledge. We're uh, we're supporting good projects uh, from a number of organizations. There's a large number of indigenous nations and indigenous uh, young people uh, involved in. Um, in activities that will cover 1,200 kilometres of coastline with this uh, $9.5 million. And in addition to that, we're focusing on young people in particular uh, with an additional $5 million for projects that are yet to be chosen through uh, our recently announced Future Leaders Programme.
0: Uh, Important when we look at the range of pollution and the range of debris and that that is on the coast. But when we're talking specifically about vessels and derelict ships, is there any move or why can't we go after the owners of the ships to at least pay for part of the cleanup?
2: Uh, well, that's a good question, Jill. A, a lot of the uh, regulatory authority in this area uh, belongs to the federal government. Uh, I know that uh, I and my colleagues have uh, ongoing discussions with the federal government. The important, the important thing for us right now is to uh, ensure that we uh, we make substantial headway in removing these vessels and uh, where we can uh, we can identify um, offenders who can be uh, who can be uh, pursued under existing statutes, I'm sure we'll look for ways to do that. But I know British Columbians uh, and coastal communities uh, have waited years for some substantial action to take place in this. When uh, we consulted um, a little over a year ago, it was an overwhelming uh, priority for people, not just to get rid of plastic waste that uh, people read about, they see about it, uh, uh, killing um, killing uh, turtles, killing uh, uh, Killing fish, killing um, cetaceans. Uh, they also really find these uh, these dangerous eyesores to be something that is uh, emblematic of what's wrong with waste in uh, the society and our disrespect for our ocean environment. Uh, today's a good start. We have lots more to do. I look forward to uh, being able to announce uh, further initiatives, as well as the success of this one. Uh,
0: do you think there needs to be a stronger, uh, stronger legislation or stronger rules when it comes to to leaving boats before they get to the point where they're derelict, where they are sinking, or they're they've washed ashore? Does there need to be more in stopping people from doing that in the first place?
2: Well, I think uh, I think we need to analyze uh, what we see in uh, in this cleanup. We need, uh, I certainly need a a greater sense of uh, of the extent of the problem, as well as uh, any overlap of jurisdiction of the federal government. I I think it's uh, it's an open question as to which level of government has the The overriding authority, Uh, I think it's essentially the federal government that does, but uh, we uh, represent British Columbians in our government, and British Columbians have told us they would like to see these derelict vessels cleaned up. Uh, They found the federal government uh, not moving as quickly as they would have liked and restricting their activities to uh, immediate and imminent threats. So we're trying to begin to fill the gap here, and we'll have more to say in, uh, in coming months and years.
0: All right. George Heyman, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today.
2: Thank you so much, Jill.
0: George Heyman is the Minister for the Environment and Climate Change Strategy in B.C.